0: K M T T Kimitzion Teitz Torah Tafshin Samechet. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parshat Lechlecha. I am your host, Jonathan Snowbell. We look at the uh, Avram Avinu, the beginning of this week's parsha. See a very interesting phenomenon. Even if we go back to the end of last week's Parsha, we see that uh, Abraham has already picked up prior to any commandment from God and he's heading towards Eretz Israel. Abraham is. With, maybe, maybe with his father's leadership, maybe not, is already leaving uh, his homeland in ur Kasdim, and he's heading off to Eretz Canaan, Eretz Israel. And it's the macholket uh, Parshanim here, but uh, according to the simple reading of the Pshat, the, the, the simple order here is that Abraham is leaving for Eretz Canaan, even before any commandment on God's behalf. And this shows a lot of... Uh, Optimism, a lot of faith, he's looking for something better. But it goes even further than that. When we when we actually finally get to God's tivui in the beginning of Parshat Lech Lecha, we'll note uh, an interesting phenomenon. What are, what are God's exact words to have? Go from your land, from your the land of your birth, from the from the house of your father, to the land that I'll show you, gadol, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and I will enhance your name, I'll greaten your name. In no point in the beginning of the parsha where God gives Abraham the commandment to move to Eretz Yisrael, to Eretz Canaan, does He actually tell him that it's going to be His land. Abraham is going to a land which God is telling him to do. He uh, he has some sort of intrinsic pull towards this land. If we accept what we said previously that he already set out for the land before God's commandment, and now as God is uh, seeing Abraham is in Haran, He's telling him, "Yeah, go go to go to this land." He doesn't promise him the land at this point. He promises him a lot of great things. But he doesn't promise him the land, and on the basis of this commandment to go to, to go to Eretz Israel, he goes. Um, he goes, and he starts traveling around the country. He goes here, he goes there, and then and and then the famine comes, and when the famine comes, he goes down to Mitzrayim. And here again, we face a, uh, a machloka, a disagreement amongst the different commentators. Was he supposed to go down to Mitzrayim? He not supposed to, was he not supposed to go down to Mitzrayim? Nonetheless, whatever happens, transpires in Mitzrayim, transpires, and Avraham returns. And despite the fact that things didn't work out so well in Eretz Yisrael initially, he came to Eretz Yisrael, he tried to settle there, and then there's a famine, and he leaves. But he comes back, and he puts his faith in Eretz Yisrael. By coming back, he doesn't decide to leave and say, "Whoa, this land, I came here, but it's not working out. As soon as I come here, I came here of my own initiative. I even came here because of God's commandment, but it's not working out. I'll leave. No, he came back after the famine, and he stays in the land. And despite the fact that the Torah points out he, at this point, doesn't even necessarily think he'll even ever have a foothold in the land as far as ownership, as far as it being his land. There are other, there are other nations living in the land. He's an individual. And at this point, coming to the land due to, due, on his own initiative, coming to the land because of God's commandment, returning to the land despite the fact that the land is questionable. There was a famine in the land. Again, returning to the land despite the fact that other nations are living there. And he's just a small individual person, maybe with a large entourage. What is he against the nations, the K'nani and the Prizi that are already established in the land? And nonetheless, he puts his faith in the land and at this point, at the end of Paragud Gimel, this is the first time where he gets a, a promise from God that the land will be his and his and his and his seeds. Now he has a promise on the land. What was God holding back this promise for the land? Why couldn't you say Lech Lecha Me'artzecha Ume'otcha Ve'et Avicha Le'artzu Shereika Lechai Tenitartz Uzaracha Adolam? That promise doesn't come. This is a, a strong feeling that I uh, I think a lot of us uh, living in Eretz Yisrael and dealing with reality here, the strong feeling that maybe part of the, the, the larger Zionist idea. We came to something because we were, pu- we were pulled towards Eretz Yisrael for whatever different reasons we all might have had. And we weren't promised a rose garden. We know we we knew we, we knew we had to come. How are things going to work out as far as Parnassa, as far as our children, as far as what's going on in Israel in general, education, um, security situation in Israel? A lot of question marks, and certainly those of us uh, who made Aliyah from North America, a lot of question marks that we, we didn't we wouldn't necessarily have had to deal with had we stayed in North America. And it's with this attitude Avraham Avinu came to Eretz Yisrael. There was a commandment, and and many of us who are in Eretz Yisrael today feel too that there's a commandment for us to be here. But there's also a pull to Eretz Yisrael much beyond the commandment, just like Avraham Avinu was drawn towards Eretz Yisrael without the commandment. But there was no promise. There was no promise that everything is going to work out. we're we're waiting for the the next part of the Parsha. Um, We're waiting for that part of the Parsha where God will give us the promise and say, you know what, everything is really going to work out. And we have the promise from Abraham Avinu and we like to think that that promise will work out for us as well. But we're here, we're existing here now on this the fuel of uh, of this belief that Abraham had. That we're going to the right thing, we're doing the right thing. God wants us to be here. We're going to show our dedication through thick and thin. And we're hoping through the dedication that the promise will come as well. This. This is a very optimistic viewpoint that uh, Avram Avinu takes. And, and those of us who come to Israel, despite the fact that maybe it's, it's not the easiest choice that we have in life to make, there's, there's easier ways uh, to go about living life, we are optimistic, we believe that this is the right thing to do, and we go ahead and we do it. This optimism is something that, uh, going back to the week that uh, we, we passed through, uh, really, to me, stems from uh, Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is a time of great optimism. And this uh, reflects itself in, in a couple of ways. Um, if we notice in, uh, in the Hallel that we say on Rosh Chodesh, we say Chatzia halal. Now, without going into the halachic, understand, uh, the halachic details of why, when we say full halal and we say half halal, I just want to point out the fact that the prakim that we skip, or the half prakim that we skip uh, on, on, on chati halal, which is essentially said on Rosh Chodesh, we also say it the last six days of Pesach, but for on a, on a regular basis the chati halal is, is related to Rosh Chodesh, the more pessimistic chati prakim, half chapters, are omitted on Rosh Chodesh. The first one is the one that discussing the Avodah Zarah and the fact that there's so much Avodah Zarah everywhere. We don't mention that on Rosh Chodesh. And the parak which discusses, <laughs> I'm surrounded by pains of death and all I can find is suffering and I call it to God nonetheless. That We don't say that on Rosh Chodesh. This is tremendously optimistic because Rosh Chodesh within the, within the Jewish calendar is the beginning of the month there's no moon and the moon is the symbol of the Jewish people. When is the Jewish people at their peak? On the 15th day of the month when there's a full moon. And then therefore where are the Jewish people on their lowest? They're on the lowest at the beginning of the month or at the end of the month when there's no moon. And then Rosh Chodesh is then completely optimistic. Because when there's nothing there and we're looking to the future to see that there's something that we can look to, that's tremendous optimism. And and this comes across in another place. Because in the Musaf of Rosh Chodesh we have an interesting phenomenon. If we look at the Musafim of the Shalosh Regalim of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, there's there's a phrase that always comes up. Because of our sins, we're we're in galut, we're far away, and we, and we can't bring uh, the korbanot. And this nusach, these words don't find. There's no place for them in the musaf of Rosh Chodesh. We just immediately jump in and say that We don't mention the fact that we've sinned. We don't mention the fact that Beit Hamikdash is destroyed and we have no ability to bring korbanot. We just say v'olat alav. A new uh, mizbeach will be, will be established in Zion and we'll and we we'll, and we'll bring the, the burnt offering or of rosh chodesh on it. And you'll, Bring us to Zion, your city, in and, and rejoicing, Jerusalem, Bet Mikdash, and to Jerusalem, your Bet Mikdash, b'simchat olam. Rosh Chodesh in this way mirrors that behavior of Abraham Avinu of optimism when there's nothing there. There's no promise. There's no moon. There's room for optimism. There's room for hope. Maybe because the future is ahead of us. The month is ahead of us. We're coming to Eretz Yisrael. What can we do with this coming to Eretz Yisrael? Avraham is saying. Started off with a famine. Maybe there's only room to go up from here. This is a very uh, important idea that in the places where seeming it seems that there is nothing to hold on to, that we have to put optimism in there. That that there is something to hold on to. So Dafka and Rosh Chodesh, when there isn't a lot to hold on to, because it's the beginning of the month, there's almost no moon, so we don't mention our sins, and we don't mention the korban Beit HaMikdash, we don't mention the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, we look to the future, we say, Mizbe'a Chodesh B'tzion Tachin. there's a flip side to this and that flip side of course is the fact that we're able to come to terms with the suffering and pain specifically when we're at a point of happiness the most, uh, the, the, the most obvious example is at a wedding at a wedding when we're at a height of happiness the Chatan and Kalah are getting married no happier Jewish event on an individual level, th- then we, we put the, the, the ashes on the head of the Chatan, and we sing, mini. There is this feeling of, in a place where at the height of our happiness, we're able to deal with what's lacking. And, um, and if we go back to our example of the Musaf, then on the Musaf of Shoshah Regalim, when we're at the Zman Simchatainu, the, the Simcha of the Regalim, the rejoicing and happiness of the holidays, then we have the ability to reflect back and say, and Because of our sins, we've been exiled from our country, and the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed, and from that point we can pray and hope for better. What's an interesting phenomenon to note is the Musaf of Shabbat Rosh Chodesh, which we just passed right now. Because as I mentioned before, the Mustafa of Rosh Chodesh doesn't mention any sins, doesn't mention any destruction. As we said, the Hallel of Rosh Chodesh doesn't mention any negative nuances. And... It, and an interesting fact is that this is true of Shabbat as well. The Mus'af of Shabbat, though we don't have the ability to sac- bring the sacrifice of the Mus'af of Shabbat, we don't mention, We just say, we, we hope that it is the will of God, that He should take us with happiness into our land, and, and, and plant us in our borders. But when we put Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh together, we have a, a third nusach, a new nusach for Shabbat Rosh Shavuot, which says "Ulefisha chatanu lefanachan achnu va'butenu charva yirenu veshemem bet mikdashenu vegalayik harenu v'nutal kavod mi bet chayenu ve'en anachu yocholim lasod chavotim mi bet b'chiratecha." Suddenly, Shabbat and Shavuot has a new nusach that sounds very much like Shalosh R'galim because we've sinned and and we've been exiled and the Beit Mikdash is destroyed. So, the, the, the short version of the story is that Shabbat Rosh Chodesh apparently, the union of Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh, which Shabbat independently is something that we do every week, something very significant, but not a regal, not a chag. And Rosh Chodesh, which we have once a month, which doesn't have the status of a chag, somehow Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh together has this ability of being a chag, because Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh together only happens once every five or six months. And that's how often a Chag comes. And we can take in a Chag. And so when Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh comes together, we have a new Chag. And on this Chag now we have a little bit more happiness, a little bit more rejoicing. And during Sefirat HaOmer, when it's Shabbat Rosh Chodesh, we'll be allowed to shave. Not this year. Because it's like a hug, And when it's like a Chag, we can take our... From that high point of a Chag, we can look at what's lacking. So what we've, what we've discussed here is that in Judaism, we're able to take the position that we're in and reflect in the opposite direction. When we're at a high, when we're at the Chagim, we're able to reflect and see what's missing. When we're at our wedding, we can put ashes on our heads, and we can say, Yerushalayim, But on the other hand, when we're at our lowest point, when we're at Rosh Chodesh, when we've come to Eretz Yisrael, just on a hope, just on a commandment, but with no promise, we look and we're confident that something better will come, that there'll be a change for the better. At this point in our program, we'll turn to uh, Rav Tavori, who will be talking about the yard site of uh, Gadol B. Israel in the upcoming week.
1: Friday, Arab Shabbos, Parashas Lech Lecha, Zain Cheshvan, is the yard site of one of the greatest leaders of Polish Jewry. mayor Shapiro, known primarily as the Rosh Hashiva of Chachmei Lublin, and as the founder of the Dafyomi, was born in Romania in 1887. He was born into a family of great Yichas. His father was the Rav, Arv Bezdin of his hometown. And his father was a descendant of great Hasidus Sherebis. He was a descendant of the famous Rav Pinchas of Karitz, Rav Pinchas Karitzer. His mother also came from an illustrious family. She was a descendant of the Bach, who was of course the father-in-law of the Taz. As a young boy, the stories that are told about Rav Meir are almost legendary they're actually hard to believe. They say that when he was four years old, he began to learn, and his mother made a suuda and invited many people to attend the simcha. Now usually we know when children begin to learn, they're given a flag, they're given some honey, and uh, it's a very pleasant occasion. But they say that Rabbi Meir Shapiro himself at the age of four, said a speech which he had himself written. And of course, the legend continues how he was a tremendous idli, a child prodigy, who learned primarily within his home environment. We do not know of any yeshiva background or any specific rabbanim who were his teachers, Except for his own father and grandfather, at a very young age, he was known as an evilian a Masmid, and at the age of twenty three, he became a rav of a city in Poland, where he stayed for a number of years until nineteen twenty four, when he was approximately thirty six thirty seven. He became the Rav of Pietrukow, which was a much more illustrious town in Poland. While he was there, he became very active in Agudas Yisrael. In a certain sense, he identified himself with the Aguda. He said, I and the Aguda are one. In the Aguda ranks, he became the educational director of the Aguda, became one of the leaders of the Aguda, and as the leader of the Aguda, he became a member of the Polish Parliament, the SEM. The Polish Parliament always had certain Jewish representatives, and Ramiro Shapira was chosen to be that representative. He had a an knowledge and awareness of the foreign culture, and could deal with issues of the SEM. He was also, apparently, as we can see from pictures, a very striking appearance, very noble, carriage, and seemed to have made an impression upon everyone whom he met. Of course, the major two events of his life are the most remarkable stories of Rabbi Meir Shapir. He planned to build this yeshiva of Chachmei Lublin. The, until that time, yeshivas were places of a base madrash where people learned, but the boys who wanted to study yeshiva had very difficult conditions. The concept of course of esm teg, of eating days, was the approach taken in those yeshivas. The fellows were assigned, if they were lucky, to different houses once a week to get a decent meal. Dormitories did not really exist and the Shiva boys really lived a life of hardship. <coughs> they used to quote the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, shatora, pas tohel, main The Mishnah says, this is the way of Torah, you should eat bread and salt, drink a measure of water, your sleeping conditions are not very good, but somehow we think, Me'aniyim takes a Torah, from the poverty-stricken, those people that study day and night in the, in the being themselves totally indigent, somehow will, Torah will emerge. Romero op- opposed this concept, and he said he wants to build a big yeshiva. In order to do that, he had to go around the world raising money for this yeshiva. He said that he was going to build a building with a hundred rooms, a building which had a dormitory, which had of course a Bet Midrash which had a tremendous library. The and essentially the concept of a kitchen and the place where the boys would eat was an innovation of a mayorshapir. In the building they built a mikveh as well. In order to raise money, the mayor was faced with a reluctance of many people to give money, as they were not accustomed to the fact that we give money on a large scale to build the yeshiva. Many stories are told about the wit and wisdom of a mayor going around to collect money. They say that one time he went to someone's house and the person quoted that mishnah. Why are you building such a beautiful house? Kachidarka melach tocha. The quoted the end of the mishnah. came. Is this the way you live? Is this the way you really think Torah meant for us to live? It's true that Torah can also come out of poverty situation. But is this the way it's done? Perhaps we should read it as a question mark. Kachidarka Torah. That's really the way Torah should be learned. Pas that you should eat bread and salt. The mayor, of course, was rebuffed quite often. One of the stories that is told is when he went to a certain person and asked for a large donation, the person not only gave him nothing, but insulted him and berated him. When Reb was leaving the house, he turned to the Balabas, who really, really had been rude to him, and said, I'm not pregnant. The Balabas, of course, did not understand this esoteric comment, and he asked Rav Meir to explain. And Rav Meir said, sometimes I come to a person's house, and he doesn't give me any money, but he pays me such respect, he talks about the concept of building yeshiva, the importance of Torah, he pays personal homage to me, but he says he doesn't have any money. When that happens, I say, a on the Money. At least I got some cover, got some respect, some dignity out of it. Sometimes the opposite happens. I come to a person who will give me a check. He'll give me a, even a large sum of money, but he'll say shnayer and treat me with such disrespect and make me feel terrible. And I'll walk away from that house and say a on the on the dignity and honor. At least I got the money. In your case, he turned to the Balabas, you both insulted me, hurt my feelings, and gave me no money. That's a kapara, both on the money and the kavod. That's two kaparas. Only a pregnant woman needs two kaparas. Of course, Arv Yom Kippur, there's a custom of doing kaparas, and we always do one kapara in it. Once upon a time, today also, some people take chickens and do a kapara. We take one chicken. But a pregnant woman has the custom of taking two. One for her, and one for the embryo, for the child. So, a pregnant woman takes two kaparas. mayor said, I don't need two kaparas. Needless to say, the wit very often accomplished what a straight appeal could not do. And Yomair built the yeshiva. When the yeshiva was built, There was a Yom Tov, actually, in Poland. People came from all over. People even came from America to witness the establishment of the yeshiva. And it was a magnificent building. I had the privilege of visiting this yeshiva when, a few years ago, I went with a group of students from Yeshiva HaRatzion on the trip through Poland. We had known that the building of the famous Yeshiva of Chachmei Lublin had become a medical school and later, more recently it has been rebought by the Jewish community and is being rebuilt or refurbished redesigned to be a home of Jewish culture where shi'urim will be given I n- went to the Bet Midrash a very impressive building which apparently had been used as a lecture hall in the medical school, after the Churban of Europe, and I gave a shiur there. When I gave the shiur, I explained that one of the entrance requirements to the Yeshiva of Chachmei Lublin was to give was to know two hundred pages of Gemara by heart. I knew personally the Bokheng, the examiner of Chachmei Lublin, Reb Pinchas who was later the chief rabbi of Montreal, was known to be one of the greatest Bakim of our generation. He knew Shas word for word by heart, including the little numbers, the sides of the page. He had a photographic memory, and the entire Shas was printed in his mind. He told me that he used to give bachinas on any 200 pages that the boys came in and he always wanted to show that there's something more, a little more v'kiis, a little more understanding that they could accomplish. And therefore, he knew the entire shas. no matter which 200 pages you came, not only could he test the boys without a gemara, but he could also show them that he knew it better than they did. I pointed out the irony of the situation. Here I am giving a shir on the stage, on the bimah, where Amir Shapiro stood and gave Shir in the place where Avhershbun was the Bocheng, and I couldn't have even been accepted to the yeshiva. To know 200 pages of Gemara by heart? I wonder today how many rammim in yeshivas actually could have passed the Bechina to get into yeshiva of Chachmei Lublin. The other major accomplishment of Amir Shapiro's life was, of course, the Daf Yomi. At an Aguda convention, Rameir proposed the idea that Jews all over the world learn the same pages. He had a few ideas in mind when he proposed this idea. One of them was that Jews from all over the world will have something specifically in common. At the end of the day, a Jew, at that time traveling by train, today a person flying from Israel, landing in, in, in Tenek could say, could meet somebody in shul that night and they could discuss the daf yomi, the daf that they learned that day. They both had learned the same page. Another concept of the daf yomi was that there were certain masechtas that were learned more in yeshiva and certain masechtas that were learned less. The mayor's idea was that we should learn all masechtas. The entire range of shas should be learned. And of course, if you learn daf yomi, so within seven years, you accomplish the to see you, my you finish the entire shas in somewhat above more than seven years. They say that the first day, this suggestion created a great amount of discussion and people weren't really sure how it would take off. Would it happen? Would it not happen? One of the other great leaders of Polish Jewry at that time was the Gary Rebbe, who of course attended the Knesia HaGdola, this big meeting of Rabbanim in Europe. A group of Hasidim went to the Ger Rebbe and said to him, Rabbi Meir made this, uh, this discussion, this idea, what do you say about it? We'd like a discussion of the topic. The Ger Rebbe's answer was, I have no time to discuss it now, because I'm on my way to begin Dafyomi. This, of course, was the signal for all Ger Hasidim to begin learning Dafyomi. And Dafyomi has since taken off to a tremendous extent. Perhaps, in the first 20-30 years, there were chevros, there were groups that learned Dafyomi. But, today, we have seen such a proliferation of shiurim of Dafyomi, that it's simply incredible, and we just wonder the nachas that Rav Shapir would have seen from his idea. Today, there are, there is hardly a community which doesn't have at least one year in Daf and of course the magnificent sim that's made when they finish Shas all over the world, which is today transmitted through electronic means. Thousands of people attend; other thousands, who knows how many people participate in the sim This is part of the great mifal of mayor Shapiro. Unfortunately, these two great ideas were accomplished by him but much more may have been done but Rav Meir Shapira died at a very young age he was 45 or 46 when he was Niftar it's almost mind-boggling to think how much this man has, had accomplished in such a short lifespan the legends of his death are even more remarkable on Zayn Cheshvan that year he assembled Talmudim around him and told them to sing and dance they say that they sang to a tune that Rav Shapiro had himself written. He loved those students, wanted to be with them on his deathbed. He himself had no children. His students were his children. This is the greatness of Rav Shapiro, known for the Dafyomi and known for the Yeshiva of Chachmei Lublin.
0: Thank you, Rav Tavori. Um, we'll be just about wrapping up our show for this Erev Shabbat. Um, again, we like to end up uh, just like uh, we discussed on an optimistic note, that uh, Avraham came there to Israel without a promise and at the end of the, in the middle of the parsha already, he got a promise that because of his devotion to Eretz Yisrael, because he came to Eretz Yisrael without a promise that it will be his land, and he came back to Eretz Yisrael despite the famine, and despite the fact that other nations were already living and entrenched in Eretz Yisrael, he came back to Eretz Yisrael, he settled in Eretz Yisrael, and, and he got the promise. And with this optimism, we hope that uh, today on Zayin Mar Chashvan, now, here in Eretz Yisrael, we began saying, vracha. We began praying for the rains, that we should have a, a very rainy season, that uh, the Kinneret gets all filled up, maybe overflows a little bit and fills up the yamamelech as well, which is, by the way, also mentioned uh, in, uh, in this week's Parsha. But uh, we hope uh, for an optimistic Shabbat, in which we get the promise as well. L'cha'yeten et hazot ki et kol ha'aretz asher atah ro'e nana u'la zaracha ad Shabbat shalom.